Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, with so much news here in the state over the last few weeks, from Governor Inslee's phased reopening to the lockdown protests in Olympia, and even a possible special session in the legislature to deal with the budget shortfall, we convene our Week in Review panel to break it all down. Then we are joined by the chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad, to talk about why you should become a precinct committee officer, or PCO, in time for this year's presidential election. The filing deadline is coming right up. And finally, we talk with Tamina Watson, co-founder of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, to hear about how the pandemic has impacted our immigrant communities here in the state and about how you can help. That is all ahead, so stay with us. So before we jump into the show, I have a call to action for you, and it is a really important one. I'm sure listeners have been following the just horrendous jobless numbers that we're seeing at the national level as a result of the pandemic, but you may not be aware of the numbers here at the state level. They are, in a word, jaw-dropping. I just heard the numbers, and I I just honestly can't believe it. There are currently 1.45 million unemployed here in Washington, which is an astounding 38% of our workforce. This represents a 2,501% increase year over year. Wow. So Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is leading the charge to address this, and I'm urging all of us in Indivisible to support her Paycheck Guarantee Act. This one is really, really important, gang. So the money from the stimulus packages from the federal government so far has not really helped workers and small businesses. Jayapal's Paycheck Guarantee Act, we're just going to call it the PGA from here out, would do exactly that. It guarantees people's paychecks. It also prevents mass layoffs, and it keeps businesses stable until they can safely reopen. Also, as an added bonus, it bans stock buybacks. Remember those from 2008? It also protects collective bargaining, and it puts worker representatives on corporate boards. In other words, it does what government should do in a crisis like this, which is to put the needs of workers and small businesses above corporate interests. To be clear, this goes beyond extending unemployment benefits. This is an income guarantee. You may have heard about this from other countries that have rolled out this kind of thing, and hey, what do you know? It looks like it works. So, for example, in Germany, Germany, their unemployment numbers are projected to rise about 0.2 to 0.5 percent compared to the staggering U.S. job loss numbers like the 38 percent that we're seeing here in the state. As you likely know, Congress is right now working toward a fourth stimulus bill called CARES 2, and we want to make sure the Paycheck Guarantee Act is part of it. Our members of Congress need to hear that Americans support the Paycheck Guarantee Act and want to see it funded. Indivisible National has endorsed the Paycheck Guarantee Act. It is part of the hashtag people's agenda. And more on that in the next segment. So stay tuned for that. But Congresswoman Jayapal needs Washington Indivisible chapters to voice their support on this. It is understood that when enough regional grassroots organizations speak up, legislators pay attention. So... Here's where you come in. There is a statewide indivisible game plan to make this thing happen, as rolled out by our friends at Olympia Indivisible. So first, between now and Monday, they are asking that you sign a letter of support, which will be sent to Speaker Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Ordinarily, online letters are disregarded, but in this case, the Speaker specifically asked that members show their support in this way. I will have a link to that letter in the show notes for you. 
After you sign that, send an email to olympia.indivisible at gmail.com, letting them know that you have signed that. And then tweet and post your support for the PGA using the hashtags People's Agenda and WA Indivisible. Then on Tuesday the 12th, we will call our senators and ask them to sign the Senate version of the bill. They have not done so yet. Also, we will call our representatives. Please thank both Congresswoman Schreier and Congressman Adam Smith for signing on if they are your representative. And then let's get to work on the state's full delegation. We want to get every member on board with this. So let's ask them to get behind Congresswoman Jayapal's Paycheck Guarantee Act. And then again, after you've made the calls, post up about it on social media with hashtag People's Agenda and hashtag WA Indivisible. The final step is on Wednesday, Olympia Indivisible will email you a copy of the letter with all the signatory name groups. Send that letter to your members of Congress and urge them to support the PGA. And again, tweet and post about the letter using the hashtags People's Agenda and WA Indivisible. If you missed anything, I know this is complicated, so if you missed anything, I will have all of these steps for you in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org and also on the Washington State Indivisible Facebook community, so you can check it out there. There is a lot riding on this next stimulus bill, so let us do everything that we can to make sure this package is for the benefit of the people and not corporations. And now, on with the show. Over the last few weeks, there has been an avalanche of news here in the state between the commencement of Governor Inslee's phased reopening of the economy to protests in Olympia against the stay-at-home order. Also, a word of a special session in the legislature to address budget shortfalls and so much more. So I thought we would convene our panel to break it all down. So with us is Will Casey, Communications Director for the Washington State Democrats. Hello to you, Will. How are you, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Stefan. And Chris Petzold, founder and head of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Chris. Hello there. Thanks for having me on. How are you guys both doing? Are you holding up? Chris, you you and I have been comparing a lot of notes about uh, being stuck in our domiciles. How are you dealing with it after all this time? I think you can just sum it up by saying, meh. Yeah, all right. Yeah, three-letter answer. Will, how about you? Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I mean, you know, no one enjoys being cooped up for this long, but, uh, you know, trying to walk the dog and stay healthy and stay active and, you know, do my part to, to keep everyone else uh, safe and, and sound. Oh, boy. Well, let's uh, start by talking about some people who are not doing that. Uh, the, the protests that have been happening across the country, we've seen a series of these so-called lockdown protests, including one here in Washington in Olympia on April 19th, which had several GOP lawmakers and political figures in attendance. Uh, well, let's start with you on this. I'll just ask you, what does it mean that we have elected officials in the state who are not only openly defying the governor's order, but are encouraging other people to do the same? I mean, frankly... Uh... Uh, Stefan, honestly, it's dangerous. I mean, there's there's no two bones about it, right? Like this is a, a virus where we have to be concerned about, you know, each individual infection. The the way that we're going to reopen this economy as safely as possible is only when we have a handle on, you know, community transmission. And frankly, like encouraging people to defy the order and gather. And as we saw in the news coverage of those protests, not with appropriate, you know, face coverings or masks and definitely not observing the social distancing. Um, they're putting themselves and, and more importantly, you know, their neighbors uh, at risk. Yeah, absolutely. Red, Chris, what's your take on all of this? It's ridiculous. I mean, and this is a pandemic. I don't understand how they can be so stupid. And it's just shameful. Shameful. 
so, you know, we, we'll get to this in a second. You know, I think that there are legitimate concerns here, but what we're seeing uh, from GOP leadership is, quite frankly, jaw-dropping. Um, I will also mention that seven GOP state lawmakers have just announced that they are filing suit against Inslee's stay-at-home order. Uh, well, this suit isn't likely to really go anywhere. Why, why do we think they're doing it? Uh, this is just, you know, another uh, piece of their, you know, tried and true playbook that they rolled out with the Tea Party movement, uh, you know, back in uh, 2010. So, I mean, this is a, a playbook that we've seen before. And, you know, as the saying goes, you know, if you fool me once, you know, shame on you. But if you fool me twice, shame on me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that all of us, you know, in democratic politics and also folks who are covering this in the media need to understand that this is not something that reflects, you know, popular opinion. This is a fringe group that's being funded by, uh, you know, some, some dark money groups, meaning we don't know who's giving the, the money to these organizations like Freedom Watch uh, that have some ties to none other than uh, the family of uh, President Trump's own uh, Secretary of Education. <clears throat> so we've got a situation here where all they're trying to do is try to give this imprimatur of legitimacy to this uh, nonsense uh, objection by filing a piece of paperwork that's going to get the media to cover it as if uh, there's some sort of good faith dispute here when really if you take a look at the lawsuit it's just a regurgitation of right-wing talking points you could find on any sort of you know uh, far-right Facebook group comment section yeah so media attention um, where is state Republican leadership on all of this what are JT Wilcox or GOP chair Caleb Heimlich saying about all this See, this is where I'm most I'm most frustrated and most disappointed here, Stefan, because this is the same set of leadership uh, here that has been part and parcel of the far right strategy to discredit the you know nonpartisan experts who are giving you know this public health advice, as well as you know discrediting discrediting the legitimacy of uh, any democratic elected officials' opinion in our public square with, you know, a significant portion of the electorate here, right? I mean, this has been their playbook is to basically say the only people you can trust are us. And now you have folks like JT Wilcox and Caleb Heimlich, who are maybe not parties to the lawsuit, but uh, Wilcox said that it was a good thing that this order is going to be tested in court like on the record, which is obnoxious because it's not a, a well-formed lawsuit. And uh, you don't have to look any further than the attorneys who filed the suit to see the ties to the state Republican Party. Um, David DeWolf is uh, one of the two attorneys who signed the complaint. Uh, and he's a former uh, state Supreme Court candidate who the uh, state Republican Party spent over $80,000 in an independent expenditure uh, supporting him in 2016. So it's really tacit uh, approval. They're essentially signing off on this. Yes, make no mistake. This is the Republican Party's official position is they would rather uh, make or pull these kind of stunts in the media, endanger the health of their constituents, than you know, come to the table and try and work with Democrats in Olympia to figure out a way that, you know, everyone's voice can be heard here. Because they have no platform. I mean, they, they have no other thing to do because they like, what does the Republican Party even stand for anymore? That's I don't know. That's exactly right, Chris. I mean, their quote unquote plan is nothing more than just an opportunistic ploy to try and get sales tax and, and business tax cuts um, that are only going to help, you know, the, the people who are actually owning these businesses, not the workers who are working there or the people who need to spend money to revive our economy. So right in the middle of a pandemic, they're trying to push a plan that's going to dramatically worsen the uh, funding crisis we're facing at the state government level right now, um, all because you know, Moscow Mitch and his fellow uh, Republican senators in D.C. Uh, are playing into the president's uh, rhetoric around bailing out blue states, which is just simply not true. 
Yeah, and I, you know, you you touched on this a little bit earlier about how these protests are, are astroturfed. Uh, you know, Freedom Works, Alec, we we can kind of follow the money there. And I'm just wondering why is this is this a matter of billionaire interest just funding a push to turn the economy back on through state and national lawmakers so you know they can keep being billionaires? Uh, Chris, what do you think? I think there's more to it than that. I think this is actually really sinister and it's designed to sow discord and chaos in the country. Um, a lot of these folks just want to bring the government down. So if you know, if they can sow enough chaos, then that that will happen. <laughs> so I, I think it's actually really sinister, in addition to being about their greed. Right. Well, so, well, what do you think in, in terms of like the, the deep pockets who are funding these events? What is their interest in all of this? Yeah, yeah. So I think their interests are getting their factories open, right? Like they're not the ones who actually have to show up to these meatpacking plants that the president is forcing to remain open, despite the fact that we have seen here in Washington state, the difference that, you know, uh, a non-unionized workforce uh, at, at a, a meatpacking plant here, just down the road from a fully unionized plant, where uh, the unionized plant has nurses on site every day to take folks' temperatures, to do screening, to, you know, there's paid family leave or paid sick leave, even if people suspect they might have symptoms, and the plant is operating fine, right? Like, they're continuing to, to churn out inventory. And meanwhile, you know, just down the road, you can read about this in the stand.org, uh, uh, you can you see that there's a huge spike, uh, in fact, the majority at the time of, of that article's posting, um, of the cases in Walla Walla were from this one uh, meatpacking plant that didn't have worker safety protections. So this is entirely a ploy to try and get people to go back to work in unsafe conditions because they care about their bottom lines more than they care about your safety. And there's a big disinformation campaign going on with all this. Chris, you were actually online discussing an article in Business Insider uh, that details how bots are promoting a lot of these protests and spreading this disinformation uh, about coronavirus. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I'm a true techie dork. Um, so this <laughs> this really kind of interests. Um, I frequently go to this website called Bot Sentinel, and they use machine learning. I mean, science to identify <laughs> <laughs> and inauthentic, you know, Twitter, social media accounts. Um, they trained their systems in 2018 um, and they're seeing that the bot or inauthentic activity around COVID totally eclipses anything that they have seen before. So it's so dangerous. Um, and um, the, the, the guy who started this, um, this uh, bot sentinel website, he said, um, empowering violent extremists is a very old method for collapsing unstable states. Mm. Um, and so this is the Russians. This is, you know, people who aren't our friends. Um, and they're optimist, op sorry, optim opportunistically looking for some kind of disaster and they're going to take advantage of the chaos and it happens to be a pandemic which is just so awful i mean i checked the the top you know hashtags that are trending um this afternoon covid19 maga trump 2020 QAnon, fake news latinos for trump wow. these are all the hashtags that are that are um being promoted by these bots and I just think that something has to be done about the spread of disinformation on social media. I mean, Twitter could start labeling these accounts as a bot and highlighting their place of origin, like Russia. Yeah, I mean, if that's knowable, 
then, you know, if, if a site like Bot Sentinel can track this sort of stuff, then Twitter can too. Um, that's yeah. a whole separate discussion, but one that we actually should get into uh, in the future. Will, I want to yeah. talk about public opinion on this because public opinion is not on the side of these protests. Um, the vast majority of Americans want the stay-at-home orders to continue. Um, I just wonder, like, what is what is the long-term strategy of, of these organizers? Are they trying to shift public opinion their direction? Do you see evidence that public opinion is starting to change? Uh, no. Well, I mean, so so no, public opinion is not changing. So there's a Pew Research poll that just came out that showed uh, a sizable majority of Americans, 68%, continue to say that their greater concern is that state governments will lift coronavirus-related restrictions on public activity too quickly. Fewer than half as many, only 31%, say their greater concern is that states will not lift restrictions quickly enough. So this is the thing that uh, their overall goal is that they want to try and force this false choice between an economic recovery and a public health recovery. When we know, as a matter of fact, that there can be no economic recovery until we have a public health recovery, right? Like, I don't know about you all, but I am not going to go get my hair cut if I think that I might be an asymptomatic, you know, carrier of this disease. Well, well I, I hate to break it to you. I don't have any hair to cut, man. So there I'm you not go. like you <laughs> in, that, in that department. Or a beard trim in your case. There definitely. you go. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, and no one's going to want to go to a concert. No one's going to want to go to a sporting event. No one's going to want to go to any of these types of uh, large gatherings if we don't have assurances that we have the testing supplies that we need, that our hospitals have the capacity that they need, and that the federal government has finally gotten off its ass and given us the personal protective equipment that our healthcare workers need to do their jobs safely. Uh, this is National Nurses Week, and right now we have nurses here in Washington State who don't have the adequate supplies to keep themselves safe while they are putting themselves on the line to treat our most vulnerable. That is not acceptable. Shout out to all the nurses and the frontline workers. Absolutely. Uh, I believe it was Wednesday was International Nurses Day. So uh, if you know a nurse, thank a nurse. They are right out there on the front lines doing just incredibly hard work, putting literally putting their lives on the line. And look, you know, you guys, there are legitimate fears uh, about people being out of work, people losing their business. So I, I wonder how we on the left address that concern. You know, I think... The phased rollout is designed to do just that. But, uh, you know, Will, as a comms person, how would you message around this? So I think the thing that the media has really been overlooking here, and, and we're pushing this out from the Democratic Party and having all of our elected officials carry this message as well, is that it is, of course, perfectly reasonable for people to be upset and concerned about, you know, their financial future going forward here. Um, but the only two options here are not immediately reopen the economy and let a whole bunch of people get infected and subsequently die or continue to stay under a lockdown with no sort of economic relief, right? Like government can be doing things here. Uh, the problem is there's not enough education happening about where the levers of government need to be pulled and who is holding up that progress. Right? And why do you think you that know? is? I think because it's a little bit more complicated of a story than just show up to this protest and put a microphone in somebody in front of someone and just repeat what they say, right? But what what people need to understand about this crisis is that the federal government is the only governmental entity that can run a deficit, right? When we have these kind of emergencies, the United States federal government is the number one most trusted uh, sort of borrower in the entire world 
And we have the ability to finance a true economic relief uh, package that involves a safe vote by mail nationally for everyone, as well as continued you know, uh, wage support and continued supplemental unemployment insurance. But Republicans want to revert to their you know, tried and true tactic, their same unpopular toxic agenda they've had since the Reagan administration that says, you know, we're going to force people back to work under basically any circumstance. We have no compassion for working people in this country. Uh, the Republican Party doesn't. And they frankly don't have any concern about whether or not you or I or anyone else is evicted from their apartment or loses their house. Right. But like the state government is limited in what we can do here because we cannot run a deficit. Right. We have to find the money somewhere and we just can't put everything on a credit card for the short term and get people through this crisis in the same way that the federal government can. But Mitch McConnell and President Trump refuse to do what people need. That's the problem here. Yeah. I mean, this is literally what the federal government is for to right. marshal the large resources to protect us. I mean, if not that, what? You know, what are they for? Well, Chris, you just provided the perfect segue for me because I want to talk about what Indivisible is asking the federal government to do in that capacity. So they are asking members to push for what they are calling the people's agenda. Uh, As we know, we are likely looking at a fourth stimulus bill from Congress. What does Indivisible want to see in that bill? Yeah, um, so there's kind of four points of, of importance um, on this agenda. So one is keeping people on the payrolls, um, ensuring federal dollars go to workers and small businesses, not huge corporations. I just want to shout out to my own representative, Kim Schreier, who sent an email today saying that we're not going to bail out corporations. Here, here. Yeah, just saw that. That's awesome. Amazing. Uh, so, and pro- so the second one is providing uh, financial relief, direct financial relief, food relief, direct uh, debt, sorry, debt relief, eviction protections. The third uh, point is about protecting public health. So full health care coverage for folks who have COVID-19 and then protection for all the frontline workers. Um, And then the last point is to defend um, elections. So vote by mail for everyone defend in-person voting for those who need it. Um, And, you know, all of these points, so basic, all of this will help our country rebound faster. I don't understand why we're even fighting about this. So folks can find more information um, about this on the peoplesagendapledge.org. Cool. I will have that for people in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. And, you know, before we move on from this, I want to ask both of your opinions about, in particular, the verbiage around vote by mail. How hard do you think Democrats should push for this to make it an ironclad part of the next stimulus bill? What are your thoughts? I mean, I know that uh, one of our members, uh, Susan Delbene, is Congresswoman Delbene, is is fighting for specifically five hundred million dollars in immediate aid uh, in order to help states make the transition to vote by mail. And I think after what we saw in Wisconsin, compared to you know uh, the record turnout that we saw here in Washington State for our presidential primary, even right at the beginning of uh, sort of the coronavirus outbreak shows you all that you need to know about how important vote by mail is for this November's election. People will come out to reject this president, right? Like right. that is that is a foregone conclusion. We are going to do the work. We're going to make the phone calls. If you, you know, haven't gotten plugged in to start volunteering yet, head to wa-democrats.org and join us. Um, we are going to make sure that we drown the Republicans in volunteering and phone calls and door knocks once we can finally get back out uh, talking to our neighbors. But 
The only question is whether or not people are going to have to sacrifice their health to make that happen. Right. Right. Uh, and, and that's just a choice that no one should have to make. Um, our chair, Tina Pavlodowski, had a, a, a great op-ed in Crosscut this week, um, sort of about all of the different ways that Washington's uh, Democrats in the state legislature here have increased access to the ballot and at a minimum paid postage on all ballots uh, you know, nationwide needs to be something that the rest of the country follows our example on. Yeah. Chris, I suspect I know what you're going to say, but uh, vote by mail has to be in the next stimulus package. Make or break. Democrats should really go to the mat for this. Yeah. It's critical. It's part of how we're going to save our democracy. I mean, uh, the Republicans are doing everything they can to suppress votes. We saw that in Wisconsin. We need to make I mean, can you imagine Wisconsin being repeated throughout the country? We cannot let that happen. We're so lucky here in Washington State. Um, and it's, you know, it's on the backs of plenty of hard work um, that Democrats did to get us there, get us here. Um, but this must be a national push for vote by mail, 100 percent. Yep, totally agreed. Uh, and then, you know, back here at home, we may have a special emergency legislative session coming up this summer to address budget shortfalls around the pandemic response. Will, I will ask you what you think Democrats should be pushing for here. And also, I'm curious to know how you think this might play into the November election, where, of course, Dems are looking to hold on to their majority in Olympia. Well, I mean, I think, of course, you know, there are going to have to be some tough choices made as we look to sort of move forward and, uh, you know, deal with the projected revenue shortfall. Um, I think that all of your listeners will be uh, reassured to hear that unlike uh, in the Trump administration, um, the campaign side folks here uh, in, in Washington state don't really get much input uh, on the official side decision making process. Um, so I can't really speak with any sort of knowledge about, you know, what the governor's strategy or, or any of the other, uh, you know, sort of legislative leaders are, are thinking there. Um, but I can, I can promise you this, um, they're going to make sure that they take care of, of the working people here in Washington as much as our resources allow, right? But I think that that's something that folks really need to be keeping in mind as they sort of watch how the special session unfolds, is that the, the ultimate sort of ceiling on what we can do is limited by our inability to run a deficit, right? And what we really need is, you know, for the federal government to drop this divisive rhetoric about red states and blue states in the time of a national crisis and recognize that it's not the fact that states voted for Democrats in the presidential election in 2016 that makes them, you know, susceptible to this virus. It's the fact that we have large cities with dense urban populations um, that recognize the value of, uh, you know, voting for people who are actually going to represent their interests. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's those, it's those dense populations that make us vulnerable. It's not uh, anything about, you know, the, this virus is not discriminating on partisanship. So I think that, uh, you know, we have a Democratic uh, legislature here and, you know, uh, a Democrat in Jay Inslee in the governor's office who have been consistently following the science on this. They're going to do everything they can to continue that uh, in the special session. And I'm sure that, you know, the listeners of your show are going to be right there with us in, you know, making sure that they are rewarded for that uh, strong leadership in November. Chris, I'm going to give you the final word this week. What will you be looking out for? And what do you think Democrats should be pushing for in this special session? It's going to be some really, really hard choices. Given the our tax system is 80% reliant on sales tax, which has taken a huge dive. So, I'll be looking for, um, you know, our, our our legislators to really uh, protect protect our people. Um, I think that's the most important thing to to happen right now, um, and to not 
um, implement austerity mes uh, measures as much as possible because I don't think that's going to get us anywhere. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. And just as a heads up to listeners, I will be bringing you coverage of the special session uh, in advance and when it happens. So we will leave it there for this week. Uh, thanks to both you guys uh, for taking the time and for your insight. Well, Casey, thank you. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be here, Stefan. And Chris Petzold, thank you. Thank you so much. Precinct committee officers, or PCOs, are the backbone of the Democratic Party here in Washington, and right now is your chance to become one. We have discussed PCOs on past shows, but it is time for a refresher because the filing deadline is coming up. And so joining us to discuss this is chair of the King County Democrats, our friend Shasti Conrad. Hello, Shasti. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'll ask you, how are you doing? Hanging in there. <laughs> we were just talking about it's such a strange feeling to, you know, just be in one place, but we're healthy and happy over here. Well, good. Well, so let's talk about uh, PCOs and just kind of refresh people on what a PCO does and particularly why the position is important. Yes. So precinct committee officers, as you said, are the real backbone of the Democratic Party. They make up the voting base um, for the Democratic Party. They also are our key organizers, which you know I see is the main job of the of the party is to make sure that folks are getting registered to vote and then also that they are turning out to vote um, in the primary and in the general elections. And so PCOs are elected every two years. And um, and we are on that deadline. Next week is filing week, and we are um, looking to really make sure that we get as diverse a pool as we can um, to make sure that the party is fully reflective of, of King County. A precinct is sort of a subdivision of a legislative district, and what a precinct committee officer really does is they go out and meet all of the voters, uh, especially the Democratic voters, uh, in their precinct and encourage them to get registered and vote, right? Exactly. Yep. So precinct, I kind of consider them like neighborhood captains. So, you know, precinct is a small subset within a legislative district. And it's, you know, it's normally could be depending on what part of the county you're in, but it could be about 150 maybe doors of it's, it's really it's your neighbors. And yes, the, the job really is, you know, getting to know your neighbors and getting to, you know, getting getting there to build up those relationships to encourage them to participate, you know, in our electoral process and, and voting. I read a number recently that I thought was very interesting. Uh, a PCO's uh, participation in an election can make the difference of five percentage points in terms of turnout. Is that true? Yes. So we looked at our data from just last year, from the 2019 um, election. And what we found is that in precincts that had a PCO, there was an um, increase on average of five percentage points higher turnout wow. and um, versus precincts that didn't have a PCO. And that makes a difference. What we found is um, if we had just increased by um, you know, 10% of our precinct committee officers, that would have resulted in um, more than 20,000 people voting. And for sort of scale, um, I often say, especially in King County, you know, we have to be the progressive edge for the rest of the state. And I-1000, which was the affirmative action initiative yeah. um, that was put back, was passed in the state legislature, put back on the ballot um, this past November, it would, if we had had more PCOs, 
we would have had enough to pass I-1000. And so it really matters. It really does make a big difference. I would love to talk about, in addition to that, which I think is reason enough to become a PCO, I would love to talk about some of the benefits, other benefits of becoming a PCO. For one thing, you have a say in the party's platform, right? Yes, you do. Um, you are you get to choose the leadership. So elected PCOs are the ones who are able to they elected me. So as chair, the PCOs were the ones who elected myself and the rest of the leadership team. And then also in the legislative district, it, um, you know, you get you get to vote on who your chairs are for the legislative districts. Um, and then, yes, you get to be a part of the platform and making sure that you know, the policies that you care about, the issues that you care about are part of the work that we're doing. Also really important to note, and we just saw this this past weekend up in the 38th legislative district, which is up in Snohomish County, um, PCOs, if there is um, a, an appointment to the state legislature, it's PCOs who vote on it. So there was um, Representative or Senator John McCoy up in the 38th retired, and that triggered an appointment process. There were 44 PCOs who um, were available to participate in the vote. And those 44 PCOs were the ones who determined that the state rep, June Robinson, would become, uh, would be appointed to the state Senate. And then also that there were three um, candidates for the state rep seat to fill June Robinson's seat. And the PCOs were the ones who got to select who would get to go to the state legislature. So it's a very important role that has some real um, responsibilities and and um, it makes a difference in who's getting to participate and be at the be at the table yep. um, you know for elections super important and also uh, I think it's worth noting that if you are interested in running for higher office a lot of people kind of get their feet wet being PCOs so it can be a great launch pad as well um, I would love for you to talk about the need particularly the vacancies I was sort of surprised by the the lack of PCOs. How many precincts in King County and how many have PCOs right now? Yeah, so there's just a little over 2,600 precincts in King County. And we currently have um, only about 45% of them filled. We have wow. a little over 1,100. How can you find out if your precinct is, is, is in need of a PCO? So we have developed a tool at kingcountydems.org, um, kcdems.org. You can go to kcdems.org backslash PCO. Okay. And in there, um, you there's a tool where you can put in your address, and then it'll pull up um, to see whether or not your precinct has a, a PCO. And then if it doesn't, there is a um, link to file, like pledge to file. And then we will send you the information um, exactly how to register. And it's pretty cool. Um, you will get to be on the ballot. Um, so for the August primary, if there is more than one person that applies to be a PCO, the files would be a PCO in your precinct, then you get to be a part of your first election. Um, as you said, we, um, you know, a lot of our elected officials have actually said that that was their first elected role, their first time that their name was on the ballot. Um, we had Representative Adam Smith on with us last night in a, a Facebook Live webinar, and he was saying that it really um, trained him well on how to run for office because it was all about getting to know your neighbors and knocking on doors and making calls, and um, and and he's built you know on up from being a PCO. Wow. So there you go. You can go from PCO to the uh, the chair of the Armed Services Committee. How about that? 
Yeah. Seriously. I mean, that's that's the trajectory uh-huh. there. Yeah. Um, so what is the filing deadline? I know it's coming up. Yes. So next week, May 11th through May 15th is filing week for all candidates, um, including PCOs. And so it starts at, I believe, 9 a.m. on Monday, and then it goes through until, I think, 4 p.m., on May 15th, which is Friday, you can um, you can go onto the Secretary of State's website and you can file. Um, if you go onto our website, um, you pledge to file, we will send you the links so that we make it really easy for you to get your name on the ballot. Great. I will have all of that information for people in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Shasti Conrad is the chair of the King County Democrats. Shasti, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. While the coronavirus pandemic has been hard on all of us, it has been especially cruel to our immigrant community here in the United States. Despite the pandemic, Immigrant and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, has continued to detain tens of thousands of people, putting them at extreme risk. To discuss this situation and to talk about how people can help, I thought we would check in with our friend Tamina Watson. She is co-founder and president of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, or WIDEN, and her organization is providing trainings for Washington state attorneys to give legal representation to immigrants who are currently in removal proceedings. Tamina, hello, and I will just start by asking... Uh, how are you and yours holding up right now? Well, Stefan, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You know, considering everything that's going on, you know, I consider myself lucky and I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, the lifestyle has changed somewhat where now I'm not only lawyer and wife and mom, I'm a teacher, cleaner, slave, <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> so, uh, you know, managing to get through one day at a time. Well, all you parents are heroes in my book, particularly uh, people who are also balancing uh, very, very busy careers as you are. I will ask you a question that I think is, I know has been on my mind and I think has been on the mind of many of my listeners. And that is, how is COVID impacting the immigrant community generally here in the state? And then specifically, how is it impacting detainees? You know, it's, um, it's an extraordinary time. And when you look at the immigrant community, there are different pockets of immigrant communities, if you like, and they're all being affected in different ways. Um, COVID-19 has brought challenges that are absolutely unprecedented. And so if you think about people who are visiting the U.S. or on work visas, let's take visitors, they can't even leave the country. You know, a lot of people have not been able to get on their planes, their flights, their flights have been canceled, their countries where they live have been closed so they can't go back. So we've seen uh, some very interesting issues at our office surrounding that. And so anybody who's listening that uh, has friends and family visiting from different countries staying with you that can't leave, you do need to take measures um, about that, you know, their statuses, and that's very important. Uh, People who are on work visas have different issues that they face. Uh, If you are on a work visa, you need to continue to work. Otherwise, you are not in legal status anymore. But with COVID-19, we are seeing the onset of a recession. And now a lot of people are being laid off. And while some people have a little bit of leeway to stay, a lot of people don't. And so those are also bringing different types of issues into the fold. People who have to file cases or respond to questions, uh, they are being given a limited leeway from USCIS. 
where they have a 60-day window uh, to play with to respond to their to whatever questions they have to give. But detainees have a different uh, story altogether. Now, there are cases in the courtroom that are non-detained and some, and a lot of them are detained. And I'm going to talk about court cases first, and then I'm going to talk about detainees in general. Okay. The case, cases that are in court that are for people who are not detained, those cases are being postponed for the moment. And if you think about the backlog that we already see for immigration court, this COVID-19 backlog will really add at the back of that, if that makes sense. And we don't know what's going to happen with this delayed backlog in the immigration court system as a whole. With detained cases, um, there are those cases are still going on, but there are you know challenges with that, uh, and you know people are filing motions and so forth, and it's happening um, you know not in person. Um, with detainees in general, if you look around the country and the, the people that are in detention centers, there's a huge concern about them. You know, if you think about us, where we have the privilege of being at home and keeping our social distancing, people in detention centers and prisons in general just don't have that luxury. And there is a lot of concern about what is going to happen when COVID-19 spreads uh, within these detention centers. And while the detainees are, you know, contained, the people that are actually serving them, the ICE officers or whoever, they, they, a lot of them have been um, tested and found to have COVID-19. So they're spreading not necessarily from inside, it's going from outside to inside. Mm. And so there are a lot of uh, cases going on, litigation going on uh, with detention centers. Our very own local Northwest Immigrants Rights Project has filed several cases for detainees that they represent. Um, and only recently they were able to get just one of them out. But the courts have not been able to... Um, allow a generic sort of release of uh, immigrant detainees. Around the country, there are a lot of these uh, litigation uh, uh, cases going on. And, uh, you know, we have to watch the space. But one of the things that uh, people can do, because this is just so heartbreaking and it's essentially a human rights issue, uh, people can call their senators. And their representatives, because I think if there was ever a time that the people need to stand up, it's now, uh, and to stand up for human rights. So, yeah. if if your listeners are uh, thinking about what they can do, they can number one call their senators and representatives wherever they are in the country. They all have the same concerns, uh, but also think about donating to the organisations like Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. There is an organisation called Aldea, A L D E A. They are at the front front uh, lines fighting uh, for detainees every day. There is um, uh, an organization in, in the southern border called Al Atrolado, and they have always been uh, fighting for immigrants in detention centers. And some of these organizations really do need the funds. And so call your representatives and uh, donate where you can, if you can. Of yeah. course, you know, we're in a dire situation where people have personal issues. So there's only so much you can do. But if funds are not something you can do, please call your representative more than once if you can. 
Yeah, I was going to say that's something that you can do free of cost. Call your senators, call your representative. Um, and I will have links to all the organizations that you just mentioned in the show notes for people. So what your organization, Widen, does is to train attorneys to help represent immigrants who are in removal proceedings. And this need is about to become even more pronounced because the Supreme Court is expected to rule on DACA in the summer. So in addition to the numbers that you've just discussed, there may be an additional 40,000 young people in need of representation. Um, Just kind of put this in perspective for us and and talk about this need and and how Widen is is working to meet that need. Very good question. Yes, a lot of people could need uh, representation in the courtroom. And so we at Widen are looking ahead and essentially trying to train our legal community in Washington state to be ready for whatever may come. If we are able to train uh, our community with the substantive area of law, uh, it means that should we fall into a chaotic situation, we're able to just bring them out and have their help immediately rather than spend time training them you know, from scratch. So essentially, we're putting on a, a CLE that will be uh, on May 11th uh, through a live Zoom um, event. And then we have several pre-recorded uh, sessions from experts in our area. And then we will have a one-hour tying up, you know, ending session uh, where people can ask their questions. And this is done so that COVID-19 considerations are in place. You know, people can watch these um, videos in their own time, but, you know, attend these Zoom meetings at lunchtime, for example. And we're essentially trying to prepare. Preparing is everything when we know something is coming, even if we don't know what it will look like. And so just to be clear, you are taking people, uh, attorneys who don't specialize in immigration and giving them the tools that they need to be able to help assist in these cases, correct? That's correct. And you do not have to speak Spanish or other languages? No, it's a bonus if you do, but you do not have to. Can you give me just very briefly, I know that these trainings have resulted in a pretty solid success rate in the past, and I know these things are very relative because, of course, um, you know, the, the, the cases are not largely one uh, deportation cases, but uh, Widen certainly helps. Having representation certainly helps. Can you just give us a little bit of the numbers surrounding this? So when somebody has representation, their chances of success go up exponentially. Uh, there are reports that these uh, success rates go by go up by 11 times, actually. And all of our cases, we because we have experienced lawyers on our team who supervise the pro bono lawyers, we have an excellent group of people who do these representations. And in all of the cases that we've had in our short history, we've had um, uh, over 50% success rate in the number of cases that we've had. That is just tremendous. And I will just ask, and you alluded to this earlier in terms of the trainings, but in terms of representation for these cases, do you need to be there in person in regards to concerns with, with COVID? You know, a a trial does require in-person representation, but these preparations don't have to be in person. Uh, Our teams have worked in different ways. Some have gone to court, some have not. 
Uh, the immigration court lawyer has to go to court. There's no question about it. But the pro bono lawyers, some have and some have not. And given what COVID-19 will look like in the coming months, we don't even know how the court system is going to look like. Man. So what I will ask people to do is please take the training. The training is going to be only $55 for seven CLE credits, which is a lot of credits for almost free. And the idea is that we just want to train you. And the best case scenario is you get training and you got the get get the credits and you know you've got them and the worst case scenario is that you are able to step up and help the community at a time when they're really going to need the assistance but COVID-19 will have a, a a place in this whether you know ICE will go out and do anything you know we we have to watch the space but what we can do as lawyers is be prepared. Where can people learn more about how to uh, sign up for the trainings? They can go to two places. Um, they will primarily go to our website, www.widen, that's W-I-D-E-N, law, L-A-W, dot O-R-G, and there will be links to signing up. To get more information about us, our Facebook page is very active, and that's at uh, Widen Law as well on Facebook. Tremendous. Tamina Watson is a co-founder and president of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, or Widen. Tamina, thank you for the work that you're doing, and thanks for coming on to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for having me. Really grateful. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.